listening to Tiger Talk, the student media podcast. I'm your host, Piper Hutchinson, bringing you news from LSU and the Baton Rouge community. Being joined today with Allison Alsop, a Reveille reporter who has been covering the legislature. Allison, can you give us a little update about what legislation is affecting higher education this year? Yeah, I definitely can. Um, There were several bills that went through the legislature this year uh, in regards to higher education. Some made it and some didn't. Um, Some of the main ones were a resolution on tenure. Uh, It essentially established a task force that would study tenure policies across the state and they'll report back with with their findings. Um, There was a couple of bills um, just in regards to how universities handle um, different situations. So uh, HB 364 uh, handles disciplinary hearings um, and establishes a better um, guidelines for what universities need to implement within their policies. Um, House Bill 888 establishes a way for campuses to get a um, title of being a hunger-free campus and they have to go through through a couple of different procedures and they can also get grants for being named a hunger-free campus. Um, of course, there was Senate Bill 81, which uh, was in regards to TOPS and the uh, reporting requirements for TOPS. Can you tell me a little bit more about the reporting changes with the TOPS legislation? Yeah, so TOPS traditionally reports a couple of demographic, um, a couple of different demographic information on who is receiving TOPS. Under this bill, if it gets passed into law, it would remove the reporting requirement for um, parental income. That's interesting. Uh, I wonder if that has anything to do with uh, the the Board of Regents reports last fall that there were millionaires receiving TOPS. I I think that's definitely interesting and and could have something to do with it. Um, I mean, if you look at the history of TOPS, it comes from, or, or rather it stemmed from the actions of Patrick Taylor and his efforts to help the um, people of New Orleans, the underprivileged of New Orleans, who who didn't have access to college due to their finances. Um, and the predecessors to TOPS actually did have income caps on them. Uh, TOPS does not, but now we definitely won't be able to know who is or isn't receiving it. That's really interesting. So what else happened? Um, HB 499 um, created tuition exemptions for people 55 or older, or rather it didn't create the tuition exemption, it created funds for the tuition exemptions because that exemption was already in place. Um, But this would create funds for it so schools would actually be able to implement it. Um, We had Senate Bill 250, which was in regards to NIL. And that's definitely interesting. It it now allows for universities to pretty much directly pay athletes and potentially... um, potential athletes as well uh, in recruitment, which has been a big, um, big, I I guess there's been a lot of rumors of this already happening. Um, And, and, you know, I don't know why they brought this bill forward, but maybe it was because of, of these rumors, but it'll definitely change the way our athletes are brought to this, to the schools around the state. NIL has been the forefront of a lot of people's minds when it comes to athletics. Um, but that was not even the most controversial athletics bill to come through the session, was it? No, it, it definitely wasn't. Senate Bill 44, which has now been um, 
put into law without the governor's signature. It was deemed the Fairness in Women's Sports Act. But all it really does is, um, not all it really does, it's, it's a pretty big bill. I don't mean to undermine it in any way. But it, it says that sports have to be, um, athletes have to be in sports based on their biological sex. Um, so it would eliminate transgender athletes from participating in their, in, in their, their sports. So it would make it to where uh, students have to be on teams in accordance to their sex assigned at birth rather than their gender identity. Yes, yes. Um, and this bill has tried to there they tried to pass this in the past this in the past, um, but of course it was vetoed last year by Governor Edwards and they failed to get a two thirds override. And Edwards said uh, this year that he was going to let it go into law without his signature because he could see the efforts being made by uh, legislators. And although he didn't support it, he felt that uh, it was going to become law, whether he signed it or not. So interesting. Is there anything else that happened this session? Nothing as major as, you know, the the tenure task force or the Senate Bill 44. There were a couple of smaller ones like HB, I don't believe I mentioned HB 231, which would allow or provides that um, four-year institutions create reverse articulation agreements with two-year institutions, which would make it easier for students to receive their associate's degrees, um, moving from LSU, say, to a community college. Um, There's not always that agreement when you're moving in that direction. Um, So this would allow students to do that, or it would um, make it so that schools have to have those agreements. That's interesting. You know, there was one bill that failed to make it through that I think you covered pretty extensively. Can you tell me about Amy Freeman's bill to provide free menstrual products? Yeah, so that bill, um, when it originally started, it highlighted menstrual products being provided in school bathrooms. It was later amended to just be um, primarily about a location where the school um, deems necessary and and would be um, accessible for students. But essentially, it would require schools to provide menstrual products, pads, tampons, and the like to students free of charge. Now, some schools already do this, of course, in in the nurse or at the office, um, but it's not universal across the state. So this bill would require that. Um, It was making its way through the House and through the Senate and all the committees. um, But unfortunately, they didn't get to hear it on the by the last day. uh, And so it, it didn't get to go through. Yeah, I think a lot of people thought that was pretty unfortunate. It made it through both chambers and all it had to be was concurred upon, but yeah. they didn't make it happen. Yeah. Um, and it, it did, which was weird. It didn't really seem like, I don't know if it was just a timing thing or what, but it didn't really seem like it had that much opposition. So I'm not really sure why it never got to be heard, but I guess that's just the way things go at the legislature. Sometimes that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Well, Allison, what did you think about covering the legislature as a student reporter? It was an entirely new experience for me. Um, it's it's where I, you know, started reporting. I hadn't done much reporting before that. Um, and it was, I think the only way to describe it, it is exciting. Because you go there and, and, and you get to just walk the halls with these legislators. And um, before, I guess I always viewed them as, as being kind of inaccessible to the public. I, I never really thought like, oh yeah, you could just exist around them. And, and, and maybe that's just my thinking on it, but it, it was definitely 
really cool to, to be around them. And, and I learned a lot. Um, you have to work on a much tighter deadline than you do for other things. You know, you publish then and there. Um, so it was it was very interesting. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Allison. Uh, if people want to follow your work, where can they find you? Uh, on Twitter at Allison Allsop. All right. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. Now with Alex Dorado of the LSU Manship School News Service. Alex has been covering the legislature for the past few months. Alex, can you hit the highlights of the legislative session for us? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. It's great to be here. So I think um, definitely one of the biggest highlights was the redistricting session that we had. You know, it's only every decade with the census coming out. So every this is decade, except when you have to redo it. True, true. So um, yeah, that was a great opening to the legislature because it was before the regular session started. And so um, I think that was a really big part of it. Uh, we got to see a lot of like conflicting maps and it was all in just the Senate and House Governmental Affairs Committee. So we were all always in the same spot. And um, no, yeah, I thought it was uh, it was crazy redrawing maps. Not only was it the state House and Senate, but it was also a congressional district, Supreme Court, Bessie and stuff like that. So yeah, there's so- a lot to digest. What is the state of the maps right now? Okay, so the state of the maps, from what I've been hearing, and I've been talking with Miss Melinda too. So right now, the Middle District Court of uh, in Baton Rouge struck down the congressional map that the legislature had proposed. Right, so a federal judge, uh, Shelley Dick, told um, the legislators that they had to redraw the maps and um, give them a deadline of June twentieth. And I know that um, Sheck Snyder and Cortez both thought that that was not enough time to draw these maps. And so they went to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, that's Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, it's more conservative Court of Appeals, to get a stay on the motion. And I think that they did at one point, but then that stay got rescinded. So now they're still back on that deadline, and I'm pretty sure they started today redrawing these maps. And so um, I think that's where we are right now. A lot of what Miss Melinda has told me is that they really don't know what's going on or how they're going to do this. And it's like a lot of it's up in the air still because this is like, I don't know, a rare, a rare time that's never happened before. So so for those who are listening, can you kind of explain Miss Melinda and why she's such a guru? Uh, yes, the legend that is. OK, so Miss um, Melinda, she has previously worked as a capital reporter for the last 20 years. Um, she's been work. She's also worked for the Associated Press. She's covered everything from legislative politics to a serial killer in Baton Rouge. And now she's working with the Public Affairs Research Council of Louisiana, which is a nonprofit that, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sponsors or advocates for better government policies and stuff like that. And so she has an in with a lot of the representatives. She knows everything that goes on and is very versed with, you know, state politics, Louisiana politics in general and specific. But um, yeah, she's she's a legend. She knows everything. And I was talking to her today because I'm working at PAR now. Um, well, yesterday I was talking to her about the legislature and how this is going to play out with redistricting because this is really, everyone's kind of in the dark here. I think she said, uh, she asked, I think Miss Melinda asked uh, Cortez or one of the legislators, like, 
is there anything we know for certain right now? Is there anything that we can agree on? And I think one of them said, like, we can't even agree on the sky is blue. Like, we can't even agree that the color of the sky is blue right now. So I can't guarantee anything. So, yeah, she's definitely a legend. Yeah. Well, redistricting has been a long, drawn-out process. Yes, yes. So going past that into the regular session, mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about what happened then? Yeah. So there was um, a lot of bills because it's the um, it's an even year. So now legislators had the opportunity to author as many bills as they wanted because of the year. In odd years, it's a fiscal year. Well, legislators are limited to five bills, I'm correct? Yeah. And so... Yeah, it was a tons of bills and um, a lot to do with, I think one of the biggest topics in the legislature this session was abortion. I think that got a lot of there were serious coverage and a lot of flare ups on abortion. Yes, definitely. Can you tell me about the big controversial abortion bill from Danny McCormick? Yes, yes. So Danny McCormick authored a bill that would um, basically, in essence, it would deal criminal charges to women that seek abortion. And so it, I mean, created a complete upcry from everyone involved. I'm pretty sure the Louisiana right to life, all of the pro-life organizations came out against it. Yes, exactly. Like everyone seemed to be against this because I mean, it's such a crazy thing. I mean, like I know pro-life people or anti-abortion people are always advocating for the mother and for the, woman that's, you know, going through this. So to see them backlash against the anti-abortion bill was pretty crazy. And the, and the bill itself was, I mean, just, I, I mean, like I have never seen anything like that before. And I know, um, yeah, it was entirely, it was crazy. Uh, we were there for the, I remember watching the house debate on it on when it came to the floor and there wasn't even a debate. He completely took it off the calendar because we knew the fate of that bill. So yeah, that bill, it got really heavily amended right yes. before he pulled the bill to make it more similar to another abortion bill. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Katrina Jackson's bill that's right. pending governor's action right now? Mm-hmm. So Katrina Jackson's bill, Senator Katrina Jackson's bill, basically um, up the penalties for having an abortion if the trigger law goes into place, which we've had on the books since 2007, 2006? 2006. And right. those are penalties for the abortion provider yes. rather than the woman. Is yes. that right? Yes. Abortion providers. Yes. Not the woman. Um, yeah. So we just, Senator Jackson just authored those and it um, passed through the entire legislature and it's on the governor to see what he does. But um, yeah, it was, it was really crazy with Jackson's too. I know that got um, national coverage. I think the White House spoke out on it about it being a um, a crisis or something like that, an attack on women's rights and stuff. And um, yeah, it was Senator Jackson's bill was pretty crazy. Um, I know that there was a lot of uh, outcry with the bill and just the general, you know, attack on women's rights in Louisiana. Is, and like it was marked by, you know, this case. And especially I think it's because of um, emboldened by these anti-abortion groups because of the leaked Supreme Court draft uh, pertaining to Roe v. Wade. Right. You know, what was previously, like, as Governor Edwards called it, an academic discussion, it's becoming a reality because any day now uh, we're expecting Roe v. Wade to be overturned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I definitely think this emboldened a lot of legislators and lobbyists to um, 
author legislation that like, you know, puts into place plans for if it does, if Roe v. Wade and the precedent is set for what, God knows how long now, 50 years is rescinded, then, you know, there's a place to start with restricting abortion. And then it also, I can't be forgot, it also restricts um, abortion in cases of rape or incest. Those two amendments were completely they were rejected. Rejected. And so, you know. Yeah. It, you know, if Governor Edwards signs this law or lets it go into mm-hmm. the law without a signature, Louisiana will have one of the most, if not the most, mm-hmm. restrictive abortion laws yep. with abortion being illegal pretty much immediately upon the overturning of Roe. Right. Yeah, definitely. I know there's like 13 states nationwide that have trigger laws. And I know uh, Louisiana is one of them that provides no exceptions for rape or incest, which I mean, is insane. Like I don't understand that at all. Yeah. All right. Well, what else happened? Okay. Let me think. Um, so yeah, we definitely had those abortion bills. We had the, um, Oh, hello. Another McCormick special. We had his concealed, uh, carrying a firearms bill, house bill 37. Um, it basically, and the original intent of the bill was to um, take away the licensing needed to carry a concealed firearm. Well, after Senate committee, it completely got changed, the entire language of the bill, which changed to now arm teachers with guns, with firearms in classrooms, because, you know, that's the perfect solution to our problems. Yeah, um, it's kind of interesting that that was the less controversial version of the bill. Right, definitely. And it seemed to go by and send a committee without like any really like, hold on, like, what are we doing? Right. It was pretty bo- broadly supported amendment. Right. You know, some language in that bill that I found interesting was that if that bill had passed, the identities of the those teachers wouldn't be public record. Yes, Exactly. And I don't think, like, the kids would not know where that firearm is located in the classrooms. It would not be subject to um, public record law. And, I mean, just, and it did provide for teachers to be certified and stuff like that. But, like, is more guns in the school the solution to, like, the mass shootings we're seeing in public schools across the United States? Like, I don't think that's, I just, that might not be, I mean, that might be common sense, but I don't know. Definitely a lot of interesting changes. Right. Is there anything else this session that stuck out to you? Well, I know one of my favorite stories to write was on a um, bill that pertained to an adopted person's right to their original birth certificate. There was a, um, a good deal of bills that pertain to adopted persons in Louisiana and, you know, rights of children in foster care and stuff like that. So for this bill, Rep, um, Representative Charles Owens he authored it because he's adopted himself and, you know, he's an advocate for it. Um, it basically would get rid of the cost associated with rece- uh, accessing the original birth certificate they were given at birth. So after they were adopted, um, their original birth certificate is sealed and they get a new one with their adopted family. And um, prior to 1977, any adopted person could go to the courthouse and get the original birth certificate. After that, a bill passed, restricted it for um, a bunch of different reasons that you have to present to court as to why you would need your original birth certificate. And so his bill that passed and will hopefully be signed by the governor basically just gets rid of the costly burden of having to hire an attorney to go appear at court 
to say that, hey, I want my birth certificate for A, B, C, D, you know, a bunch of different reasons. So it's just basically getting rid of a lot of the costly hurdles and bureaucratic jumps you have to go through. Now, did that bill pass? It did. It did. It passed both the Senate, the House, and it landed on the governor's desk. Yeah. Wow. Well, that'll be a, a big improvement for adoptees yeah, looking for their birth certificates. Definitely. I think that's going to um, change the game and, you know, adopted persons having, and a lot of what they said was they just wanted to have adopted persons have the same amount of rights of any other Louisiana citizen to get access to the original birth certificate. And I know that a lot of the people that spoke in proposition of the bill use that as a talking point where like they're just not treated fairly. This is a like almost a civil rights issue where they're not treated equally under the law. So, oh. yeah. Well, Alex, how did you like covering the legislature as a oh, student journalist? Oh my God, I loved it. It was amazing. It was pretty, pretty cool. Like, I mean, this is my first time ever doing this before, like reporting on legislative politics. And it was amazing, like invaluable experience. I, like I could not imagine it being any cooler. Um, I did walking into it, it was very intimidating. I'm not going to lie. Like seeing all of these other reporters in their element, like knowing what's going on and everything and me walking in with redistricting, like I was really very intimidated by them. Right. And I just had to remind myself basically like, you're not like, you're not going to jump in being as good as them. Like you're just starting out. It's okay to not know everything. And so just reminding myself that like, I'm only going to get better if I keep trying and keep practicing to someday be like them. So definitely intimidating at first, but once you get the hang of it, once you start knowing what's going on, it's a little bit smoother and you get to enjoy it a lot more. It's definitely hectic too. I know there were times when like seven committees were going on at once and I didn't know which committee I wanted to go to for like an education bill or like a, you know, administration of criminal justice bill. So you're kind of jumping around the whole legislature, but um, hey, it's a good time. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now I'm being joined with Dr. Daniel Tyrone, a political science professor at LSU. Dr. Tyrone is also the incoming vice president of the faculty senate. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Tyrone. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I brought you on today to talk about something that is on the forefront of every professor's mind right now, Senate Concurrent Resolution 6, sponsored by Senator Stuart Cathy. Um, so as we know, the resolution establishes a task force to study tenure policies in Louisiana, and it's got a year to meet and recommend reform. Obviously, this has some professors concerned. Um, can you kind of tell us what those concerns are? Sure. So tenure is a foundational building block of academic freedom at the university and not just LSU, but any university. And so anytime there is a challenge to that, it makes us concerned that it may lead to deterioration in the quality of the research, the quality of the faculty, and just the quality of the purpose for which the university uh, is created and, and to which it works. So, you know, if there is some deterioration of tenure here, uh, I think it would certainly work against the interests of the state as a whole, the students, and certainly the faculty. And that's and that's really what has folks on edge. So do you think that if this task force recommends some changes that would negatively impact tenure, we would see some people leaving LSU? Absolutely. I've spoken with some colleagues who say that should and there be any substantial change to tenure, which reduces the protections of tenure, 
they are absolutely going to look elsewhere um, and, you know, bring their research dollars, bring their federal grants, um, other sources of funding with them. And that's just really not in the interest of the university. I know there are a lot of faculty who enjoy LSU who would like to stay, but just given the uncertainty around this, it may incentivize them to look elsewhere where otherwise they might uh, wish to continue their employment here. And one of the things that happens too is that once you are tenured and become senior, it does lead to a little bit of locking in because you're very unlikely to leave a tenured position at one institution for an untenured position elsewhere. So there may be faculty who, by the virtue of the fact that they're tenured at LSU, have really, you know, reduced the rate at which they're looking for opportunities elsewhere who may ramp up that search uh, because now it's less costly for them to leave LSU if tenure here is uncertain for an associate or sorry, for an assistant professor position elsewhere, which is untenured, but with the prospect of tenure later on. Right. Now, Louisiana is not the only state that is looking at tenure changes. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like the writing was on the wall going into this legislative session for, I guess, since I started covering the Faculty Senate, this has been something that you guys have talked about. Um, can you kind of talk about what the lead up to this was like? Did, were you surprised when this happened? I was surprised in one sense. I mean, as you've said, we have seen that particularly in, in the, so the southern region of the U.S., there have been more of these types of efforts to diminish tenure or, or alter, you know, substantially alter it. What was most surprising to me was the basis of that argument. Normally, when you see criticisms of tenure, it tends to be this misconception that tenure is understood as a lifetime appointment. And once faculty become tenured, we all sit around our offices drinking Mai Tais and, and sort of just, you know, relaxing and, and easing off our rate of productivity after you're promoted. And that, of course, is not the case. But that tends to be the general sort of characterization for one that, that views tenure negatively. What seems unique about this is, and it's not just in SCR 6, but in other efforts we've seen in other states, such as Georgia, South Carolina, Texas, that there is a more pronounced ideological component to this than perhaps we've seen in the past. And in SCR 6, it really speaks to, you know, the effect of, or the perceived effect, I should say, of tenure on increasing indoctrination on campus. And I don't think that is any more true than the idea that, you know, tenure leads faculty to slack off. But it, is, it was a substantive change in the nature of the argument against tenure that took me by surprise. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people were kind of surprised with that language about indoctrination in this resolution. Um, you know, a lot of the argument against tenure kind of focuses on the idea of this liberal professor teaching political science um, who's indoctrinating their students or attempting to. Mm -hmm. um, but it's certainly not only political science professors who are tenured, is it? No, I mean, there we have tenure across all, of, you know, the various disciplines at the university. And, you know, we in, in political science are particularly attuned to this because obviously the topics we study tend to be a little more politically charged. But you can really see how this could work in almost any discipline. And I think it's important to point out that we already have fairly robust safeguards against indoctrination on campus in existing university policies. So in our definition of academic freedom provided in policy statement 15, it explicitly says that we are free to teach any subject, but we're not required to make a student believe it, particularly on contentious issues. So to that extent that there may be an isolated case of a, of a faculty member going too far, we already have means of addressing that within the system that is not a fundamental failure of tenure um, or a problem with tenure and something that, to, to my mind, has already we already have that framework in place. Right. You know, I heard a lot of criticisms of uh, 
university administration kind of leading up to the passage of this resolution, do you think that President Taint did enough to, I don't know, stop this from happening? I agree with President Tate that it is valuable to have conversations. Um, and so to the extent that this can be an educational opportunity for LSU to meet with our legislature and inform them about the importance of tenure um, and potentially some changes to tenure. I mean, frankly, if there were going to be any changes to tenure, I would think we should expand it, uh, both in its protections for faculty and also the number of faculty who are covered by tenure. Um, one of the trends we've seen in the, the hiring practices in higher education is we've moved away from tenure track lines towards more non-tenure track. And I think that has been to the deterioration of our institutions and the quality of life for our faculty. So, you know, I think President Tate is right. There's an opp opportunity here for discussion and discussion in and of itself is never bad. And in fact, as, as an educator, I encourage that. The concern, of course, is will this discussion be undertaken in good faith by all parties? And that is where I think, you know, some, you know, have some concern. Obviously, we want to judge individuals on their conduct and, in, in, you know, on the task force, and we don't want to prejudge anyone. Um, you know, but if this, if this plays out the way we have seen this in other states, such as Georgia, um, where this task force was convened really with the, you know, the, the final conclusion already predetermined before we head into this, then that would be a concern. But if this is a genuine opportunity for a discussion among faculty and, and you know, administrators at our Louisiana institutions to educate the legislature on the importance of this institution, then I think it could be a tremendous opportunity. Do you think that the outcome is predetermined? I mean, we certainly have seen some troubling statements from the resolution's author, who's publicly stated that it's time to end the archaic practice of tenure. I certainly have concern, it may be, but I, you know, I don't want to uh, prejudge anyone, um, you know, and I think there is an opportunity here for us to reach out and, and, and perhaps change some minds, um, right? And again, I would welcome that opportunity with someone who is willing to listen. Um, and if we can be in that situation, then I, I am firmly convinced that on the substance of the argument, we'll be able to make a great argument as to why tenure is not only important, but should be expanded. Um, it's just, will there be a receptive audience for that argument? Right. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. The task force is going to start meeting in August, so mm -hmm. we should have some more information pretty soon. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I think the composition of the task force is going to be a critical issue, um, not only in terms of the distribution of political figures and academic figures, I mean, loosely construed. I mean, obviously, every academic figure that comes from administration is also to some degree a political figure, um, right? But if we think about sort of that stark division, uh, you know, then it does come down on the side of, of sort of the political composition of the committee. Um, you know, but I think the composition of the committee, the personalities on there, uh, and again, sort of the open-mindedness with which they approach the task should, you know, have quite a bit of uh, influence over the outcomes that are reached. Right. All right, Dr. Tyrone, is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, uh, you know, just I know this is something that the faculty are going to be watching quite, quite closely. Uh, we're going to be working, I think, closely with our uh, administrators on each campus of each system in order to really uh, drive home the argument as to why tenure is necessary. And again, if you know there are any changes, I think it should be th for the expansion and the uh, improvement of tenure in terms of strengthening of it. Because um, really, I think if there is a challenge in tenure, it has been its deterioration, not in its uh, propensity for indoctrination. All right, Dr. Tyrone, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.
Well, our next guest is Representative Tanner McGee. He is a Republican from Huma who is the second ranking legislator in the House. He also likes to make it known that he is a three-time LSU grad. So thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you for having me on. All right. Well, the big thing I wanted to talk to you about was our budget. This is kind of a unique year for Louisiana. We had so much money in play. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you are proud of in the budget? Yeah, um, it is unique when, you know, we came in uh, when I was first elected. Six years ago, we had huge shortfalls, like a $2 billion deficit, and we were having to cut things we did not want to cut, couldn't fully fund cops. It was just pretty much a nightmare scenario for me personally when I came in. And, you know, over the years, we've stabilized the budget. We've, you know, fully funded higher ed for a couple of years now. Uh, but this year, I think, was the first time we've actually made a significant investment in higher education uh, for professor salaries, to deferred maintenance, to construction projects across the board. I think it was, you know, and it's not just me who thinks that. I think it was Far Cable, one of those organizations, that was the biggest, high, it was the biggest investment in higher education in generations. So um, I'm definitely the most proud of that. I mean, I think that I've always saw LSU and other universities as economic, not just schools and places of education, but economic drivers. I've always felt like we have not really fully utilized their potential as a economic hub, research and development across the board, especially with like Pennington and LSU. And there's just so many different things that I think we could be doing a better job of. And I think this was our first time that we really started the process of doing that. So um, I'm definitely proud of it from that standpoint. And then we also invested in early childhood education. Uh, I think like, I think 80 million was the total amount we put into early childhood or roughly there, uh, which is something that the state's been trying to do for a number of years now as well. Uh, we know we get better outcomes the earlier we can get kids ready for school. And so we've been wanting to do it, but it's been kind of an empty promise for a long time. Our first step towards really moving the needle on that front. And then of course, the biggest thing was infrastructure. Um, you know, that's something that I've, We've worked really hard on probably for about three years uh, trying to upgrade Louisiana's infrastructure across the statewide. Um, you know, we, like everything else, we rate very poorly in it. A uh, lot of failing infrastructure. And so it started making some really meaningful steps towards upgrading our infrastructure. Um, I think it was all huge takeaways from the budget. Yeah, definitely. I think we've been getting a lot of good feedback from the LSU community about the budget. Uh, one question that I've been getting a lot from my readers is about the line item veto and the one that moved around money for the faculty pay raise. Do you think that veto is going to stand or do you think there'll be an effort to overturn it? Yeah, no, I don't think there's going to be an effort to overturn it. Uh, I technically think it's unconstitutional, and it's not because I don't want – I'm okay with pay rate. Um, but just as a lawyer, my lawyer had on, I think the governor can veto a line item, but he can't veto a condition. There's some case law out there that says that. Uh, Bubba Henry and Edwin Edwards got into a fight over that in the 70s. So I think if you look at the case law, but it's not something I think is worth litigating. Um, I'm happy with it as it is. I think most legislators are happy with that. I mean, you know, the legislature, I think, was trying to balance making huge investments and also making sure we're not tying ourselves in case money doesn't come later on. I don't think it was really any sort of effort to keep money from higher ed. 
but at the end of the day, I don't think it's anything that we really want to fight about. Um, so I think it's definitely to say. I think a lot of people are going to be happy to hear that. Uh, you know, with so much money that we had this year, you know, it, I think it was a less of a fight than in previous years. Do you feel like it was easier to push through the budget this year? Yeah, no, it's really less of a fight, especially between, you know, the, the, the Senate and the House and the governor where you should kind of fight and kind of wrangle. But, you know, we had this much money. It definitely makes it easier. Everybody kind of has the mindset of like, hey, let's not fight about it. I mean, you know, there's, there's more than enough to go around right now. Uh, but let's really focus on taking care of the big things and not sweat the details. That said, I mean, you know, you still have disagreements. Um, I think the governor was definitely more, uh, I think, interested in spending more and reoccurring expenses. You know, you just like want to call it that. Um, I think the legislature was nervous about doing that. And I get it. I mean, from his perspective, some of these investments are sort of legacy for him. He can always tout it that he raised teacher pay raises. He did all these different things. Then he doesn't really have to live with the next eight years of more that the next future legislature has to do that. So I think our mindset, again, today, I think we were all in agreement, uh, you know, on the big ticket items for sure. Right. Well, what what else happened this session that you'd like to highlight? Well, and, and not to change back to the subject we just did, but, you know, one of the harder things that this was, and I think the fight's a little different, is when we didn't have money and somebody came to the Capitol and said, we need X. It was like, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have the money. I'm like, okay, I just figured I had to ask. But we had this much money, and they come to Capitol and they ask for it. They're like, uh, they're like, we have the money, we just don't like your program, you know. And I think that is a little bit of harder to fight discussion that than some sort of personal to them about why you don't want to fund me. Um, and I think that that was a different thing that I'm not really used to. But that's not answering the question you asked. The question you asked was, what else do I want to highlight? Um, I think. You know, the session overall was the way it should work. Um, I think the governor's office and the House and the Senate, we disagreed on things that we disagreed on, but we came together um, on the big things and we compromised. The governor didn't get everything he wanted. The legislature didn't get everything it wanted. The House didn't get everything it wanted. The Senate didn't want to get everything it wanted. But we all got enough of what we wanted to make it all work. And I think that's what it should happen. And that's, I think, the way the democracy should be. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody got a little bit of something, so everybody went home at least somewhat happy. Yeah, and for a lot of, and it, you know, I read a lot about pet projects, kind of the, the print journalism a lot. I have a different take on that. I mean, I think, first of all, I'm, I've never, I've asked consistently on what is the definition of a pet project. I've never really gotten a good answer on what that is. Um, it seems to be, though, that the legislature puts it in then it's a pet project if the governor puts it in, it's not. And I, I think it's kind of unfair. And I think a lot of those projects um, members know about in their communities. They hear from local leaders saying, hey, we need money for this. And it's important to them. And it allows us to do the bigger work that we need to do uh, because everybody can bring something home and be proud of and tell their community, hey, I got you this pump station. Uh, or this water, you know, you've had water with, you've got drainage problems with fixing this. I did that. It allows them to have some wins and allows them to compromise on some other stuff. I think the problem is when you get rid of that stuff, it really causes dysfunction because 
what's the member to do? Supposed to go home and say, well, sorry I couldn't fix your drainage, sorry I couldn't get the fire department some extra funding or buy them a new fire, whatever their, their issue was. And so all I really could do was go there and fight for you on these bills and add to the function level. So to me, you know, I think that sort of process gets a bad rap a lot of times. I don't think it's nearly as negative as the general public or the way it's typically reported on. Well, I don't report on pet projects, so... I, don't, I didn't say you, <laughs> obviously. But I, I, I meant, though, you, it's like it's kind of a standard article that gets printed every year, like, these are the pet projects. This is where they went. And also, I find that a lot of those things end up, it's reported that way. New Orleans and Baton Rouge, they're not pet projects, but if it's, like, it's funky, it's a problem, which I always feel like it just has, like, an anti-rural vibe to it that, you know, we could do anything in Baton Rouge, have dog parks and water stations and nobody really complains about those. But if you do it in small towns, then people are going to save a pet lot. I don't know. I just find the whole thing, if we can define it, that's fine. Maybe you can look at it, but I just get frustrated kind of with the lack of state school court of it. Not with you, obviously. I think you do kind of raise an interesting point there. I think, well... One interesting aspect of how the media works in Louisiana is that there are no capital reporters for these rural newspapers. So these urban, you know, media outlets kind of control the narrative. Absolutely. And I got frustrated with um, that exact issue because the advocates sort of got into this, like, they read it, they wrote an editorial in support of using watershed dollars to redo the LSU Lake. I know it's kind of a dead horse, but like I support redoing the LSU Lake. I think it should come out of capital outlay, not out of watershed dollars, which is about doing mega regional flooding projects that comes out of Comey diversion dollars that came out of that disaster from you know seven years seven years ago. Um, it's, in my opinion, not a good way of funding it. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. And now I push back on it that they advocate, well, really, we're really a Baton Rouge paper, and we put that in the local section. I'm like, you're not really a Baton Rouge paper anymore. You have a presence in New Orleans. You have the KDN section. And we put it out on social media. You're basically statewide with it. So you're basically saying, you know, we are supporting this. This is our opinion as a detriment. And not, I don't know. I have a really, I kind of issue with that. But, you know, I can tell it goes some point. Well, if you want to, you know, relitigate all of the <laughs> all of the things that came up through the session, uh, I mean, you did have an interesting uh, conversation with President Tate in one of those committee hearings. I think back in March. Um, yeah. You know, I th- I think there is some interest in that. If you if you're interested in rehashing it. Sure. Um, so and then like it wasn't directed at President Tate. I think President Tate honestly did a great job. Um, and I think he actually heard what I was saying and addressed it. But I was venting my frustration with, I think, the Elster administration historical approach, not historical, but the recent history approach towards legislature, um, which has been to not really explain things, not really include us, sort of just like have a, a wish list of demand. And really what they would do is, I was really fair, like I think the LSU library is great they never prioritize that project the legislature in any kind of way. You didn't even really ask for it, to be honest with you. And then 
but when the story would be reported or they would kind of push the narrative, it was like, well, the legislature's not giving us money for that. I'm like, wait a minute. You really never take the test, and it's not going to ask. Like, everybody has to come. Like, as part of the process, we submit local government, entities, statewide, submit requests, and then we go through the process of which one we're going to fund, and then you explain why it's a priority, and then we prioritize and fund them. That's how it works. And you've never really done that, and then now you're kind of making us hold the bag. And it's because, like, you're kind of staying behind the scenes. You don't want to, you don't really want this. But, or you have something else, like the science building you think is better, or a new laboratory here you think is more important. And that's fine, but go own it with the students in your own school and tell them that, hey, the legislature was giving us our fair share. We just chose to prioritize the science building over the library and then own that decision and don't, you know, scapegoat us, what it really felt like for a lot of years. Um, and also, you have to include us on what the vision is here. Nobody's really come forward to talk to us. And, you know, the other universities do that. Um, I think, you know, Monty Sullivan at Technical Colleges, he's great at engaging with legislatures, explaining how he's spending the money, why you should invest the money into, into those programs. UL has been really good with Dr. Henderson about doing that, engaging with legislators, explaining things to them. They understand and educating them. And the LSU sort of taken off. They're like, well, we're LSU. We ask for the money, you give it to us. It's, I think it's been a bad approach. And so I thought it was a good opportunity for incoming President Tate to sort of understand that this is where the failure has been. And we need to correct it. And I'm willing to come meet you and help. But you got to kind of maybe change your approach up a little bit too so that you can help me help you. And because I can't go to members and ask them, to fund the library if they don't know why, and especially when a member lives in, like, you know, Tallulah or Toledo Bend area. They don't really care about the LSU library. I have to go explain to them why this is important, and you're not engaging them. You're not explaining to them. It's making my job a lot harder as a supporter of your school and somebody who wants to see LSU be in the same breath as UGA, T, and all these other schools. We talk about massive, you know, Regional Do you think that President Tate did a good job this year of explaining what his budget requests were for and why we needed them? Yes, I really do. I, I think after that initial meeting, um, LSU like really heard the message, and President Tate has done an excellent job of, of doing all those things. I thought that at the end of the day, it was wind up being a very fruitful conversation. It did even had a lot of private conversations since then. They have a really good relationship, actually. Uh, and I think we, I think we really, uh, I think he, I think he is a person who understood what I was saying. And not just me, that I, I'm expressing him with sentiment at the legislature that can be corrected. And I think if he got that message, I think he's worked really hard to change that narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, it seemed to have paid off. Uh, a fair amount of his Pentagon plan got approved. We got that funding for the library, the supercomputer, um, all sorts of things. Yeah, no, it, it makes a difference. I mean, you know, people think that legislators aren't human. They are. Um, and they they need some, they make decisions when they, I think when they make a bad decision, it's usually not, not, not all the time, it's usually not, it's ill, Ill will. It's usually out of ignorance or lack of education. We're called upon to make a lot of decisions in a lot of different areas 
people, not experts necessarily in all of them. And so it helps to be thoroughly educated on these issues and explain to you. And look, I mean, legislators to the campus and actually seeing these buildings makes a difference. I mean, all these things sort of add up, and it really wasn't happening. I organized a couple of years ago a tour of the LSU library because legislators didn't really know. I mean, they're not students. Without having that, without touching, feeling, and seeing it, it's hard to convey that to them. And look, they're also getting pulled on. Like, I have a university in my area, Nichols, and I mean, Nichols is pulling on me to make investments up there. So it's not the easiest thing all the time to just say, yes, I support this. To really build out the reasons why. Right, absolutely. Well, it, it seems to have come together a bit this year. You know, I think a lot yeah, of people no. here are pretty happy. Good. You know, I was, I tell people, I, thought, I tell you all the time, I was at LSU when all the budget cuts started happening. So I know it as a student, and I know what it felt like. I was in law school um, when stuff started first going wrong with wrong under Jindal. And I was a student when, under Foster, when Mark Emmert was the chancellor and everything started by going right. So I know what that feels like to be part of the LSU media student. Um, and so I think, I'm hopeful that maybe it feels like those days when Mark Emmett was the chancellor and it seemed like, you know, the future is ahead of all the shit. No, I, I do kind of sense that kind of atmosphere coming back. You know, I think a lot of people are optimistic about the future of higher ed right now. Well, that's good, and it makes me feel good because I uh, really believe it's I think you could say something as, you know, as LSU goes, really the state goes. I mean, I think we need to look at it in those terms going forward. Right, absolutely. We're the flagship. Exactly. And I think we we don't do enough to really communicate that message. And I mean, look, we all know the problem, too. I'm a huge LSU football fan, but we focus on it too much. It's not enough in taking pride in the actual university. I tell people all the time, I love the school and the football team, but school more than the football team. They got rid of the football team tomorrow. I'd be brokenhearted, but I would still love the university. Absolutely. All right, Representative McGee, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about? Um, I think we've covered everything that I can think of off the top of my head, but if you have any other questions, I'm happy to answer. All right. Well, I think that's going to be about it. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Tiger Talk. You can find more from The Reveille on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at LSU Reveille, on TikTok at Reveille LSU, and you can find more from KLSU on Instagram at KLSU FM or live on 91.1 FM.